many of these Indians, these natives, were actually entrusted to Spanish overlords in an institution called encomienda, which comes from the Spanish verb encomendar, to entrust. So these were entrusted, and the idea was that these Spanish overlords would be their protectors. But, you know, they would induct these natives into Christianity and protect them, etc. And in return, he would be able to make some demands in terms of their labor. This is the institution because by then slavery was prohibited. But you could argue, of course, that the encomienda was an even worse worse than slavery because basically these encomenderos had every reason to drive these natives as hard as they could. And we have, again, uh, we have documentary evidence of people saying that it was like a death sentence to go uh, to be in one of these encomiendas going to the gold mines because out of 130 or 40, only 30 or 40 returned to their communities because of this ceaseless work and because there was very little thought for food. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. About six months ago, the parallels started forming for me between our global economic system today that creates great suffering on the scale of hundreds of millions of people with nightmarish cruelty, but also people benefiting from it, looking the other way or saying, what I do doesn't matter, or the youth will solve it. You know, it's always someone else, some other time, not me now. So the comparison between these systems today and the systems of slavery. Also opening up the role models of people who devoted their lives to end slavery back then. We lack role models today of people trying to live sustainably, not just for more trees or pretty skylines, but considering the systemic cruelty that we could stop, but don't. Historically, people did stop these things. And my historical knowledge of abolition and slavery was limited. You've heard guests Adam Hochschild, Manisha Sinha, Eric Metaxas, and others sharing historical background on the systems of slavery and abolition, as well as individual abolitionists. I believe that we can learn from them and honor them by learning from them. Our situation today is different, obviously, but on the scale of billions soon. And we are alive today to act so we can do something. Today's guest, Andres Resendez, wrote a book, The Other Slavery, a book on the enslavement of Native Americans, mostly by the Spanish. I knew little about it, and it turns out much of what I knew from before, what most people know, it seems, was different than what actually happened. Our conversation covers the different character of the Spanish enslaving Native Americans to mine gold and silver, leading to global trade and a different character of the system. Here's Andres. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Andres Resendez. Andres, how are you? Just fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Glad to have you. And listeners to my podcast have noticed over the past several months that I've taken a big interest in abolition as and abolitionists as role models for people working on sustainability. And that has led me to learn more about slavery, which has brought me to you. You wrote a book called The Other Slavery. And it I think a lot of people tend to have a certain view, you know, what I grew up learning in high school, in, in grade school, not a whole lot. And you covered things, researched a different perspective. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the book and your perspectives. 
Sure, be glad to. So I really focused on the enslavement of Native Americans as a specialist on on the early colonial period, especially in Latin America, but also dabbled into what is now the American Southwest. I early on became interested in the uh, problem of the enslavement of Native Americans. And uh, I knew that it had happened early on in the colonial period, but I really didn't know much about what happened later on or the scope of the phenomenon. And so I began with that. I began with just try to figure out the number because the number is really important. So whenever you're talking about African slavery, you know we have we are to the point where we know that it's roughly around 12.5 million Africans who were forcibly transported across the, the Atlantic, and therefore, and we know that it's a uh, a massive phenomenon that that spanned I don't know maroon communities in Brazil or raids in Angola or uh, slave sales in Charleston or elsewhere. So all of that is part of this this same large phenomenon, and I didn't didn't have that same sense for Native Americans, and so I began with just a simple question: What's the number of Native Americans? And you know put in bondage between Columbus and some endpoint. And I ended my research in 1900. And I can talk about why that makes sense. So anyways, I came up with a, first of all, it's very difficult to, uh, because Native Americans, unlike African Americans, were subjected to a variety of labor regimes. And this happened because very early on, the Spanish crown and other uh, other crowns, uh, other imperial powers, outlawed the enslavement of Native Americans, but instituted exceptions or uh, slavers uh, availed themselves to euphemisms and legal subterfuges in order to continue doing it. So, so just defining that is problematic, it's complicated, and we can talk about the definitional problems with that. But what people at the time would consider slavery in the case of Native Americans, would run, according to my estimates, anywhere between 2.5 and 5 million people between Columbus and 1900, which is a, I mean, it's not a large, as large a number as African slavery, but it is very significant, especially considering the different population sizes we're talking about. In relative terms, this phenomenon was devastating in many parts of the uh, of the New World. And uh, because it was illegal, this type of slavery, if anything, became even more insidious and became even more difficult to eradicate than African slavery. So that's roughly what the, what the book tries to do. It's a moving story that begins in the Caribbean with Columbus, moves into the silver mines of Mexico, um, and eventually winds up in what is now the American Southwest. And it was different types of labor. Do I understand right that it was, um, they were used in different ways? Yeah, I mean, so of course, early on, uh, European colonists came to the New World uh, with the promise of finding precious metals, etc. But very early on, it became clear that in order to get the, that those resources out, you needed a lot of labor. And these uh, colonists surely were not going to be chipping uh, rocks and making digging holes in the ground. So they very quickly pulled the native population into the quote-unquote system. And so, uh, so really the backbone of the colonial economy in much of Latin America and certainly in Mexico was silver. So if you're talking about the equivalent of the 
So, so we know, for example, that in the case of African slavery, the slave crops that come up normally are either sugar or rice, for example, or tobacco. In the case of Indian slavery, we are often talking about mining, but we are also talking about domestic service. Is there a sense of how the Europeans that were enslaving the people treated them physically or with their mental models of, were, did they just say, oh, they're just not white or did they treat them differently for being different skin color or? Sure. I mean, certainly ethnic and racial difference was a part of the phenomenon. It worked, it was in lockstep with the enslavement of other peoples, uh, as in the case of African slavery, but with a twist because officially that was not the case. So for example, just to make a very long story short, early on slavery was okay. Enslavement of Indians was okay. It was generally frowned upon by the Spanish crown, but uh, the Spanish crown allowed for certain exceptions for this to occur. So for example, in the Caribbean phase in the early decades after Columbus, although it was generally prohibited, it was possible to enslaved Indians who were already enslaved by other Indians. And so it was okay to purchase them from their current holders, the idea being that uh, in that way, Native Americans would be at least be held by Christians rather than pagans. So that was one exception that, of course, opened a huge can of worms. It was also um, possible to uh, enslave Indians who were irredeemable in other ways, especially cannibalism. Human cannibalism was deemed uh, such a nefarious sin that you had to go through extraordinary uh, means in order to end that. And enslavement of cannibalistic natives was another exception to the general prohibition against Indian slavery. And of course, also uh, in the case of Indians who waged war, open warfare against uh, Europeans, could be legally enslaved. So as you would imagine, these three loopholes, really, that this is what they were. And that, that explains, by the way, why Europeans saw so many cannibals in and around the islands of the Caribbean. That essentially led to a very drastic decimation of the population of the Caribbean. Typically, people talk about biological explanations, and surely, uh, surely epidemics had to do with that. But the epidemics were very intricately tied to the slave economy. I mean, there was a synergistic relationship between the two. So slavery, slave raids spread germs which led to a decline in the population. A decline in the population, especially the working population, triggered new slave raids. So, so the two phenomena were completely uh, interrelated. And we tend to just you know, assign the blame exclusively to biological factors. But in fact, slavery was a major explanation for this decimation. So because of that, the Spanish crown in 1542 uh, issued the so-called new laws that essentially prohibited uh, Indian slavery in any circumstance. And this is what uh, essentially drove these, this institution underground, because then we have the proliferation of euphemisms. So you no longer call them slaves, Indian slaves, you can call them entrusted Indians or Indios de Repartimiento, uh, distributed Indians, or you call them Indians in, held in deposit, etc. And so I could go, and there were even more regional euphemisms and types of um, 
of labor arrangements that I can go into if you want me to. But the point is that a simple prohibition clearly could not stop this phenomenon on which the entire economy of the New World depended. Indian slavery did end in the Iberian Peninsula, but uh, meaning Indians from the Native Americans were actually shipped to Spain as slaves in the early decades when it was more or less frowned upon, but it was still possible to enslave. Thousands of Indians were shipped uh, to Spain, and that flow ended because of these new laws of 1542. But that was not the case at all in the case of the Americas, where it continued for a long, long time. I want to get to, if it's underground, if it's not treated as, as you know, above ground, then that means it's going to persist for a long time. It's going to be more difficult to end something that isn't accepted. But if, if I can, I want to, when you talked about the, now I thought before learning your work that the smallpox and so forth decimated the populations. And I just want to clarify that when you said there, there was that effect and it was exacerbated by, now you said that slaves dying meant that they had to go out and find, raid new slaves. Mm-hmm. Now, were they dying from smallpox when they were, uh, disease when they were close or were they also being worked to death? They were both. Both things were happening. So let me give you a very concrete example. So the first island that was wholly controlled by, by Spaniards uh, was uh, the so-called Hispaniola. In fact, in Spanish, it's called La Isla Española, the Spanish island, which already gives you, it's the large island now uh, shared between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. So these island had a very significant population and, uh, you know, it was visited early on by Columbus in his voyage of discovery. But uh, really the first indication that we have of smallpox, certain indication of smallpox, dates to about 25 years after that, after, after that date, to around 1517 to 1519, somewhere around there. But before that, what we have is a, and, you know, let me just add that smallpox would have been unlikely to jump immediately from the, I mean, and this is very relevant in this pandemic uh, era that we're living in. It is unlikely to have jumped so easily from Spain to, to the Caribbean because the voyage from Spain to the Caribbean in a 16th century vessel would have taken anywhere between four and six weeks and if you were, first of all, smallpox was a, an illness that was endemic in Europe, meaning that typically you suffered from it when you were a child and you either survived and became immune for lifelong immunity or you died. And so it was unlikely that you would be boarding a ship, a galleon in Spain bound for, but even if that were the case, the course of the illness was about two weeks and so really in the middle of the, of the voyage, you would be dead and your body typically was thrown overboard. And so really, if you really needed, if this illness was to leap over the Atlantic, what needed to happen was to have both an infected person and a success, susceptible host traveling in the same ship. And so that's one way. And another way, of course, is that if somebody who was infected, who left some scabs with some virus remaining active, for example, in bedding or something like that, and these bedding somehow made it to the, to the Hispaniola and made, it, made contact with somebody, with an indigenous person from the island. So there are good reasons to think that 
regardless of what our sense or our imagination may tell us, that this this was not an automatic transmission from Spain to the New World immediately with Columbus, but it would take a few years before that happened, as indeed it seems to be the case. I cannot be certain, nobody can be certain, that there were no prior outbreaks that went unreported, but the first clear mass death caused by smallpox, which was the deadliest of these epidemics, took about a a quarter of a century before arriving to the New World. But before that happened, we have pretty good censuses of the island, and we see a precipitous decline of, you know, maybe 90% of the population had died by the time smallpox arrived to deliver the coup de grace. And uh, the reason for that decimation, if not because of illness, it was for some other reasons, and one of the things that happened in the uh, in that happened immediately upon uh, the Columbus arrival was the discovery of the largest gold mines in the Circumcaribbean region in that island, and we know that the Spanish uh, essentially put the natives to work, and so we have a range of of contemporary accounts telling us how how ruthless, how cruel, how devastating that work was, and again, I can go into details about that, which caused widespread displacement of indigenous populations. It created hunger because uh, these natives were dragooned into the gold mines and therefore they could not plant. And uh, very quickly, they these population became insufficient to work the gold, the gold fields, let alone all the other stuff that needed to be done. And pretty quickly, what we have is uh, Spaniards sending uh, raiding expeditions to other islands where there were no uh, gold operations in order to bring natives whose work was badly needed in the in the gold mines. So so it all makes uh, pretty good sense. So anyways, I'm not, let me just be very clear. We will never know. It's going to be very difficult to know what the exact population was at the time of contact in 1492. And it is going to be extremely difficult to know what percentage of the deaths that occurred in the early decades occurred as a result of epidemics and what percentage occurred as a result of warfare and overwork, naked exploitation. But my sense is that uh, contrary to our widespread narrative of biological factors accounting for the vast majority of these deaths, I would say that probably uh, a very significant proportion, as much as half, perhaps, uh, were due to other factors. And the reason I say that is because this is something that you can actually see in the historical record, many, many instances of these uh, compulsory work, uh, of these uh, hungers, of these warfare. So we have good evidence for that. Yeah, I mean, 90% in a couple decades is um, pretty substantial. I can't help but ask, on a personal level, reading all these things, to what extent were you surprised by what you found? And what was it like learning these things of, I mean, I'm kind of scared to ask, you said you could go into more details of, of what the conditions were like. Is that a question I'm going to be, is it a nightmarish answer? Well, it is a nightmarish answer. I, and I'm very squimish, so I don't, uh, but I can tell you that the answer is very easy to find because some of the Spanish chroniclers were also uh, miners. In particular, one Oviedo, who wrote a multi-volume history. He knew all the movers and shakers of the era, and uh, he himself was a uh, a miner. 
So he actually had even a drawing and uh, describes very well the process. The process is very simple. It, so, and actually, I should also preface by saying that what happened in the in the gold mines of the Caribbean uh, possibly pales in comparison to what happened later on in the silver mines of the New World, which was the, really the big the big economic backbone of the entire colonial economy. I mean, the the gold phase was small, was confined to certain regions, and it was very short-lived. Is that because of the amount of gold versus the amount of silver in the ground? Yes, exactly. So really the the most lurid descriptions you can find in silver rather than gold. But I can go into the gold. The gold phase is, is interesting in its own way. Basically, these were Spanish settlers, many of whom had very little training in mining or understanding of mining, et cetera. They would all get their cuadrilla, so a little team of uh, natives that they would procure somehow. And this cuadrilla was, you know, it could consist of anywhere from four to 40 or 50 or 70 people. The gold fields were concentrated in an area in the central, I mean, close to the border between the Dominican Republic and Haiti and a little inland in some rivers and uh, and basically, these these team of natives was divided into three groups. One group, their task was to dig superficially, preferably close to streams, in order to get the sand uh, where the little nuggets of gold were were located. They would place this sand into large pans called bateas, made out of wood. These huge pans made out of wood. And they would carry those pans. So a second, the second group would actually carry all these load, uh, these pans, to a third group, often or sometimes, uh, Oviedo tells us, consisting of women whose job it was to sink these pans into the river or the stream or whatever, into some running water. And just like you would imagine, you know, California miners doing, wash away the sand that would leave at the bottom whatever God, as they put it, God wanted to give little nuggets of gold. And this is, this is the way it worked. And it doesn't sound particularly insidious until you consider that this was done over the course of 12, 15, 17 hours nonstop. Many of these Indians, these natives, were actually entrusted to Spanish overlords in an institution called encomienda, which comes from the Spanish verb encomendar, to entrust. So these were entrusted, and the idea was that these Spanish overlords would be their protectors. But in in and you know they would induct these natives into Christianity and protect them, etc. And in return, he would be able to uh, make some demands uh, in terms of their labor. So that this is the institution because by then uh, slavery was prohibited. But you could argue, of course, that the encomienda was an even worse, worse than slavery, because basically these encomenderos had every reason to drive these natives as hard as they as they could. And we have, again, uh, we have documentary evidence of people saying that the, it was like a death sentence to go uh, to be uh, in one of these encomiendas going to the gold mines, because out of 130 or 40, only 30 or 40 returned to their communities because of this ceaseless work and because there was very little thought for food. And so the communities, the indigenous communities from where these Indians were taken from, were what who were left were uh, normally the ill or the very young 
who could not do the planting uh, in order to have enough food. So typically after they were done with the, uh, and of course these encomiendas, theoretically there would be some limits of time, but often these, uh, these limits were not respected. So, uh, so that's sort of the, in, in general terms, this is how the system worked uh, in these islands. I presume that there would also be, I mean, people are going to want to escape. And so they're going to have to be some sort of method of keeping them or tracking them down if they, if they escape. And Oh, yeah. The activity in the gold fields was incredible. You were basically laboring right next to, once there was a, a gold strike, there would be many other teams working alongside you all over. Uh, so you would be, you would make a claim for just as it happened elsewhere when, when there's mining, you would make a claim for a certain piece of land, and right next to you, you would have another team, and on the other side, another team, and another team. So it was uh, extremely difficult, impossible to, uh, well, not impossible, but extremely difficult to uh, to escape. All the profits from this are going back to Spain and castles in Spain, and and I mean, I'm thinking in England at the time or later, it was just opulent wealth uh, in Bristol and, and London and Liverpool. And was that what was driving all this? Was that war- Well, the gold phase was, as I said, very, very fleeting. And the, the gold was not that much. Uh, so there was a gold rush from, say, 1500 to 1510. And, you know, it continued into the 1520, perhaps. It enriched some of the uh, initial colonists who came in the, in the wings of Columbus, some of it surely went to Spain, but not that much. Really, the big business, as I said, was silver. And silver really was a global phenomenon. So again, silver did go to Spain, did go to Europe, uh, but it was a, a global story uh, in the sense that um, silver also went to China. So the silver, the silver mines were discovered a little after what we're talking about, so a few decades later. So the silver mine of Potosí was a huge development in what is now Bolivia, was the first early and massive uh, silver mine. And there are many accounts of that and fascinating stuff. And later on in the, in the 18th century, especially, there were many other mines that developed, especially in uh, Mexico, in what is now northern Mexico. So many of the natives who became ensnared into these silver mines, some of them came from places like New Mexico. So this is the, the part of the story when the booming mining uh, development of northern Mexico really affected what is now uh, the American Southwest in, in very significant ways. But I was saying between 1500 and 1800, the Americas produced upwards of 80% of all the silver produced in the world. And China, in the middle of the 16th century, introduced a tax reform. Essentially, it stopped accepting paper money for tax receipts, and it wanted silver. And so China, at first, got some of its silver from Japan. Japan had some silver mines. But eventually, it was the, uh, the American silver mine, the big American silver mines that, uh, that essentially supplied all that silver. And China was the main and consumer of the white metal. And so uh, so basically, without China's long-term and massive demand, it is hard to imagine that the silver mines of the New World would have, would have attained the size uh, that they did. And so even though we think of the, as you're saying, this, the wealth and the silver going to Europe, it may have gone to Europe for some time, but it ultimately trickled back through intermediation 
all the way to China, or it was sent directly from Mexico. There was a this Manila galleon, this direct link between Mexico and China. So it went directly to China. So, it, so this is more of a global uh, story in which the Mexican silver circulated all over the world, in Europe, in China, in the United States. You may not know, or you may know this, that, uh, that the Mexican pesos circulated as actual tender in the United States until the 1850s. So these uh, the silver coins really became a global uh, commodity. I was thinking that the it not being technically legal would make it hard to have an abolition movement. But now what you're also saying adds to that, that if it's global and not there's no central location, it sounds like it would be difficult to, to make it illegal if it's already illegal and, mm-hmm. and difficult to stopped, persisted a lot longer. Sure. I mean, if you wanted to do a boycott of silver, it would have to be all over the world and including China and Europe, uh, et cetera. So it would be extremely difficult. I will say, however, just for the, to, uh, to get back to your interest in, um, in emancipation, that there was an abolitionist movement for, for Indian slaves and this abolitionist movement is rather surprising. It's, again, contrary to what, uh, what you might have read in history books about African slavery. This abolitionist crusade really unfolded in the 1670s, 1660s, 1670s, 1680s. So 100 years before the French and American revolutions and uh, you know, decades before the British uh, launched their own abolitionist uh, movement. And it was launched not by fiery reformers, but by the Spanish monarchy itself. A basically a uh, king, Philip IV, who, out of religious conviction and his own conscience, became uh, uncomfortable by the existence of this widespread slavery, and he calls it that, uh, which already gives you of the scope because he was getting reports from places like Chile, from the Caribbean, from Mexico, from the Philippines, all of these European colonies of people complaining that they are being enslaved. Anyways, so he went on this empire-wide crusade. And even though he died, he he died uh, in the process of this crusade. But his wife, an Austrian uh, queen, uh, Mariana, continued this empire-wide crusade, this remarkable crusade from the top down. Now, basically, the Spanish crown ordered point blank uh, many of the slavers of all of these distant uh, entrepreneurs in the Spanish frontiers to stop doing it. And in some cases, it succeeded. Again, I don't know, it's very difficult to to give you very hard numbers as to how many, but I estimate maybe a few thousand, maybe 10,000 people 10,000 Native Americans were freed as a result of these efforts. But it shows you, A, the limits of the Spanish monarchy. We often think of the Spanish monarchy as an absolutist monarchy, but in fact, their limits uh, ruling these enormous colonies halfway around the world was quite significant. And the powers that be on the ground uh, were able to resist quite successfully even direct orders from the absolute monarchs in Madrid. Uh, So number one. And number two, this precocious abolitionist movement was not based on universal human rights that applied at all times and in all circumstances. 
but it was more based on religious conviction that allowed for exceptions. So there were even, even then, even after Philip IV and Mariana engaged in these uh, precocious uh, abolitionist movement, they were some, there were some exceptions for cannibalistic uh, indigenous peoples or for uh, Islamic uh, inhabitants of the Philippines. They could still be legally, those natives of the Philippines archipelago who were Muslim could still be legally uh, made into slaves so it was a very different type of abolitionist movement, but nonetheless a very interesting, very precocious, and very significant, meaning uh, it spanned Asia, the Americas, and Europe, uh, kind of a crusade against uh, Indian slavery. Talking about it going, I mean, jumping across the Pacific and just, I mean, you're talking about the abolition, but the abolition would follow the, the slavery practice itself. And I'm thinking of that, of, you know, one of the things that, that I've, I've learned, and tell me if, if you see it differently, that there had been slavery for a long time across many cultures, but something different happened when Europeans were enslaving people in the Americas, that it was on a totally different scale and that the scale allowed this brutality, that it wasn't just a prisoner of war that was a servant in your home as it might've been a thousand years earlier. And now this, I was thinking the scale being of the scale of the size of a plantation and what you were talking about earlier, but there's also the scale across continents. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is that right that there wasn't really slavery on the scale say on a plantation scale before, and that therefore the cruelty, there wasn't as much cruelty and this greatly inflated the amount of cruelty. Is that what happened or is that oversimplifying? Well, I think I agree and disagree slightly. So I would say, of course, uh, Europeans did not invent uh, slavery. Slavery had gone on for thousands of years, as you note, uh, in uh, pre-contact America Interestingly, as we know all too well, for example, you know, Aztecs took, uh, took prisoners in order to sacrifice them uh, in pyramids. We know that uh, the Iroquois people in the, what is now uh, the U.S. Northeast uh, uh, waged mourning wars in order to avenge deceased members of their own group by taking others from other groups. We, we know that in what is now the Pacific Northwest of the United States, elite Indigenous peoples sealed marriage arrangements by the exchange of slaves. So these these practices existed prior to the arrival of Europeans and, you know, survived after the arrival of Europeans. That's how we know about them. And and some of these practices could be extremely cruel. So I don't know about the cruelty. It's that, That's the part where I, you know, it's difficult to put a very clear scale on the cruelty. Some of these practices could be extremely cruel. I, I mean, sacrificial victims, that's as cruel as it gets. And we have codices and, you know, knives, all kinds of ways to check how this was done. But what is true in what you're saying is that all of these practices were embedded in very specific cultural contexts that I'm, that we are briefly unpacking here, right? So sacrificial victims, mourning wars, marriage exchanges. With the arrival of Europeans, what happened is that these culturally bound activities became commodified and expanded in range. So now you didn't have to be circumscribed to a particular cultural understanding of a region, but you could have much larger exchanges that occurred over much larger spaces. And just to give you clear examples, in the colonial period, what we see is, for example, Apache Indians from what is now the American Southwest or New Mexico, for example, were traded all the way to Canada 
to the area of Quebec or all the way to Cuba, to Spanish Cuba, which is a type of exchange that would, be, would have been absolutely unthinkable prior to the arrival of Europeans. Or, of course, uh, natives from southern Chile, uh, the Mapuches, who were taken all the way to Peru, to the mines and other uh, businesses in Peru. You know, they were basically shipped uh, from Valparaíso, these ports, and shipped, uh, you know, hundreds of miles north uh, into a different climate, so much so that many of them died. And of course, uh, we are talking about also slaves who were shipped across the Pacific. Again, unthinkable before the, uh, the Europeans finally connected uh, these large, this vast ocean. So, for example, in some of the mines that I studied in northern Mexico, I found slaves from the Philippines or even slaves from the Indian subcontinent who had been traded into the Philippines and then across to Acapulco and then up through the roads all the way to the silver mines in northern Mexico. So just to make the point that this commodification and this expansion of these uh, networks uh, is something that would not have been possible before the arrival of Europeans. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. What was it like learning this for you on a personal level, if you don't mind sharing? Well, I spent seven years uh, on various archives. It is a very depressing story in that one of the things that tend to happen with, uh, with slavery studies is that you start taking sides. But in this particular type of slavery, basically everybody who was in a position to benefit from it did it. So Native Americans did it prior to European contact. Europeans did it. So the Spanish did it. The Portuguese did it. The English, the French, everybody did it. Then the Mexicans and the Americans did it. Various Native American groups did it. Some of them specialized in uh, supplying slaves to other groups like Comanches and Utes, etc. So this is a, a story that puts you face-to-face with human nature, uh, basically. You know, and there's no happy, happy ending because this was theoretically illegal. There was no need to end it. And there were multiple attempts to end it. So I talked about one. I talked about the uh, the new laws of 1542 by the Spanish, and it didn't happen. I talked about a second one. I talked about this abolitionist crusade of the 17th century by Philip IV and Queen Mariana, and that didn't pan out. As I said, they may have resulted in a few thousand Native Americans freed, but uh, otherwise uh, the uh, the traffic continued. When Mexico became independent from Spain in 1821, it outlawed slavery, Indian slavery, but the traffic continued in what is now the territory of Mexico. And of course, the same thing happened in the, uh, during the Civil War. The 13th Amendment eliminated not only slavery, but involuntary service, uh, something that opened the door to the end of these types of enslavement that we've been talking about 
And yet the Supreme Court applied the 13th and 14th Amendments in ways that uh, applied primarily to African-Americans, but largely excluded Native Americans. And as you know, Native Americans did not become full citizens of the uh, United States until the the, the 1920s. So in a way, this is a... uh, this is a, a pretty appalling story. And so, so after seven or eight years of doing this, I, uh, I wanted to take a breather. So I, was, I knew very clearly that my next book was not going to be about Indian slavery. I just needed to, to take a pause. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, it, was, it is exciting to see that, that many others have been fleshing out this story. What I, what I tried to do in my book is to provide a a fairly detailed but comprehensive view of the phenomenon as i said it's a it's a it's a long direct kind of story that begins with columbus and ends in 1900 and it mostly affects the areas of spanish colonization uh, but similar work has been done in the eastern united states in eastern canada in chile in argentina in central america etc so i think you know the pace is great i I keep hearing from scholars uh working pursuing these lines and finding commonalities and differences maybe so it is very it's it's on another level on a more intellectual level if you will it's a very exciting type of work as a historian yeah it you know adam Hulksh- i think it was before we hit record but uh adam Hulkshield's book bury the chains and a lot of work on british abolitionists of the late 1700s early 1800s Talk about how this was a shift that that propagated throughout the world that started there. I may be overstating it. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, you're talking about things that happened beforehand. Are they kind of over over? How do I put it? Overselling the British role, or how much were the British building on other things? I mean, I know that there's stuff in the America in North America before them of Quakers, and but I'm curious how how big were, were they? In, sure. From this perspective. Well, there were a few things, as you say, Quakers. And of course, in the Spanish context, uh, people, if they know anything, they normally uh, cite Bartolomé de las Casas, this friar who had once been a an encomendero. So one of these in the, oh, Spanish overlords who, who received Native Americans entrusted to him. And he saw the light at some point, gave up his natives and became the most uh, the most combative individual against uh, or champion of indigenous rights. So even today, university students uh, study the atrocities of the Spanish Crown in a book that he wrote, uh, essentially as a as a way to denounce the atrocities that he himself had witnessed uh, in the New World. So clearly, uh, there were a few things um, earlier, and I also mentioned the these empire-wide campaign led by the king himself. But there was a difference, as I said, in that this was not based on the idea that there were human rights that needed to be developed and protected that applied to everybody. So I think that's that's new to me. That's certainly new in the Spanish context as late as the late 17th century. So there are some clear elements that are new in the in these abolitionist movement that that would take place a hundred years after this one that we've been discussing. I want to keep asking questions. I, I think we may have gone over what you your time. You also alluded to your next work, conquering the Pacific, and I wonder if you could share a bit about that. Sure. So um, as I mentioned, I needed to to do something different to get some fresh air. 
And so I wanted to, to look at, the, at a real technological problem, which was to turn the Pacific, uh, the largest ocean in the world by far and most difficult to navigate, into a, a place of exchange and contact. And so, yes, Polynesians, by hopping from island to island, were able to essentially cross the Pacific from, you know, if you can start from, the, from southern China through Taiwan, the Philippines, etc., across Polynesia and into um, the Americas. And now we, last summer, we got some really exciting DNA information pointing to pre-contact admixture between Polynesians and Native Americans, prior, you know, dating to the 12th, 13th uh, century. So, so very exciting stuff. So they did cross. And Magellan, in, during his circumnavigation, crossed the other way, right? I mean, he crossed, he went through the Magellan uh, Strait and then crossed in one swoop for the first time in recorded history all the way to the Philippines and the Spice Islands. Uh, well, he died in the, in the Philippines. But that was not, not the end of it. So Europeans, especially Spanish in particular, uh, were able to go from the Americas to Asia, but there was no return. Uh, the Magellan expedition itself tried to get back uh, by the same way that they had come, and they were unable. Just the winds and the currents? Because of the winds and the currents, because there are two massive circular, two, two gyres, uh, two enormous wheels of wind and currents circling around the Pacific as there are two in the, in the Atlantic. And so they needed to, to find that out, to discover the contours of that and to figure out how to do that, exactly what little patch of the Pacific would enable you to come back home. And that, that was very difficult. It was so difficult that it took Spain no less than seven expeditions, all of them ending in disaster, vanquished by the enormous distances or killed by islanders, etc., before they put together these amazing expedition with no, no money uh, restrictions of any kind. They hired the best possible pilots and the best possible crews. They built probably the largest ships ever built in the New World. This expedition is practically unknown. It's uh, 1564, 1565, and the protagonist uh, was not a, a white European, as you would imagine, but was a, uh, an Afro-Portuguese man, Lope Martin is his name, who hailed from, from southern Portugal, uh, a region that at the time was probably the preeminent maritime region in the world. That's the area where the, both the Spanish and Portuguese fleets of exploration departed from and where people of color did much of the work both in the cities and in the ports and, of course, aboard the, the ships themselves. And so this, this remarkable man uh, essentially worked his way up uh, to become the, a licensed pilot, so the highest occupation that somebody of his skin color could aspire to become uh, in that age. And he was able to figure out how to... Re so he was the first to basically return not in, a, in one of the large galleons, but in what was almost like a souped up boat to show that. So it was it, so it, it, a totally different story of, uh, of the role of technology. It's also a very interesting technological. I mean, it, there are, again, we don't have time, but uh, there, there's a lot of technology involved in figuring all of this out. So I'm very excited by that. I think it's a great uh, story. There's everything, there's mutiny, there's everything in this uh, very interesting expedition. 
as well as a great human accomplishment. Uh, so looking forward to that. Uh, it sounds a, a wholly different, very exciting swashbuckling. And, and a, it pains me to not keep asking more questions uh, <laughs> because I would love to. And I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg, but fascinating nonetheless. Well, thank you. To wrap up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's really top to bring up or something that a lesson you'd like to impart? Well, not that, you know, that comes immediately to mind. No. Well, Andres, thank you very much. I mean, this is just fascinating and I'm going to keep up and thought, learn more. It, it really gives a whole other perspective that I guess has always been there. I just didn't scratch the surface and find out what was there. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Josh, and good luck with your, your program. It sounds, it sounds really great, really fascinating. So thanks for having me. You're welcome and thank you. I held back from asking Andres what I couldn't help thinking about while he spoke, which was connecting the times he described to today. One connection that came to mind, among many, is reparations. I don't know about you, but absent learning history like Andres shared, it's easy to ask today, but what did I do? Why should I have to pay? Hearing this history, it's impossible, at least for me, not to ask, how can we not address these issues? It's also easy to miss the number of directions of different groups benefiting at other different groups' expense. How to address these issues is another question. Motivating me from the start was to consider how future generations will look at us. Listeners may recall from same conversation with Rod Schoonover, he's the scientist from the U.S. State Department, who described the suffering, possibly comparably cruel, to what Andres described, this cruelty facing climate refugees in Central America, because once they cross borders, they face war atrocities, as horrible as you could imagine. Then there's Syria and more. This is happening all over the world, and we can expect those numbers to increase by some estimations, into the billions of climate refugees. And climate refugees is one of many places our system generates cruelty for our way of life, much of it happening right now already, which is totally optional. We don't have to extract, exploit, and so on. We don't have to look the other way. We don't have to act as if what we're doing doesn't affect other people right now. I believe that there's nothing more meaningful and purposeful than to take responsibility for how our behavior affects others. While it may feel in the moment like, but I have to give something up, what we gain instead, compassion, empathy, stewardship, that sense of oneness that I think we all want to connect with others, not just to drop in and visit their land like, I don't, like going to the zoo, but actually connect with them and act in stewardship of this earth that we all share. What more can we do for the past than to learn from it, to avoid repeating the mistakes of exploitation and discounting where our material wealth comes from? I ask myself, what would I have done then? Would I have accepted the silver? Would I have said that what I did didn't matter? I have to be honest with myself because I can easily say, oh yeah, of course I'll do that then. But then do I do that today? What do I consider right today? Can I look away from those at the receiving end of my plastic, pollution, pesticides, jet fuel, and so on? These questions drive me to look back. I think we often look back with great clarity at what we would have done then, but would we have? And if we would have, what do we do today? With what clarity does that lead us to look at our situation today and to act today? How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 